as Johnny said, we're taking a little break. So um, normally we work our way through a book of the Bible. Um, today we're kind of going to look a little bit at Ephesians 2 and some other bits in Ephesians as well. So if you want to keep that passage open, but keep your fingers ready to flick back and forth. Some of the verses will, will pop up on the screen anyway, but just to keep you on your toes. Um, why don't I pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness towards us in gathering us together here this morning as your church. And Lord, we pray that as we think about what it is to be the church this morning, that in your spirit, you would help us to rejoice more in, in what we are and what you have made us to be, and that you would use it to unite us more uh, with one another and around uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please give us humble hearts and ears that are ready to hear what you have to say to us, we pray. In his name, amen. Well, I guess, um, what question, what, what do you think of when you think of the church? What kind of comes to mind? Um, maybe it's some things, uh, buildings, particular smells, robes, or dog collars, types of clothes. Um, maybe it's things. Maybe, maybe it's emotions. Um, joy. Ooh, look at that. That wasn't joyful. Um, joy or frustration. Um, or maybe sadness. Maybe it's people that come to mind. People that we love. People that we're really grateful for. Or maybe people that we find tricky. Maybe people that we are ashamed of. Maybe we think of scandals. Or maybe we think of sounds, singing, organs, bells. There's lots of things that might come to mind when we think of at the church. But I guess a better question uh, is what should we think of when we think of the church? Um, and as a church, Redeemer Winchester, uh, we stand on the shoulders of generations of Christians before us who have affirmed their faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, these words are like a, a summary of the Bible's core teaching. And there's so much we could say about the church, but we're going to limit ourselves to just three words um, from the Apostles' Creed uh, this morning. Three attributes of the church. I believe in the holy Catholic church. And my prayer for us as preferring is that the Lord would help us to see the church more as he sees the church. So that when we feel tired or, or reluctant to come along on a Sunday or, or something else, that what we consider in the next half an hour would, would give us encouragement, would help us to marvel at who we are as the church and at what, what happens when we gather together, at what God is doing in us and through us. So let's begin. The first words, the church is holy. When we hear the word holy, often um, we might think of behavior, you know, someone's being holier than thou. Um, but in the Bible, talk, talking about church, I think there are kind of two senses um, of the word holy that are, that are linked together. Um, both senses carry this idea of being set apart. So the first sense is that calling the church holy is calling them a people set apart by God. Holiness is described as here in the sense of a status. They are set apart by God, something that's, that's binary, something you either you are or you're not. So in, in one sense, a little bit like 
maybe being British or French or, or South African. You, you either are that thing or, or you're not. Uh, somebody either is holy before God or not. Now, the church doesn't have a holy status because of anything it has done. The church is a people set apart by God. At the, the first verse in our reading, Ephesians 2 verse 10, the church is described as God's handiwork or, or God's workmanship in some translations. And that's why if we read through the creed, any reference to the church, it comes after thinking through who God is. God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit. Then the church comes. The church doesn't make God. God makes the church. And in Ephesians 1, just before our reading um, that Johnny read earlier at the beginning that we had sung to us, we see the church is described as the creation of the triune God. That is how God sets them apart. Inseparably, Father, Son, and Spirit work out one divine plan to create a holy people. Um, let's have a look at a few verses from Ephesians 1 to, to see that. Uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 4, tells us this. For he, that is God, the Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The church has been planned since before the creation of the world. The Father set apart a people for himself. But as we read through the Bible, we see that these people are far from holy. They, they seem rebellious and stubborn. And we've seen, haven't we, in our Genesis series, that that is, is true of, of humanity. And it continues all through Scripture. Not being holy means that these people will face God as judge. And so they must be made holy by the only one who is completely holy, Jesus Christ. And this is where we see the Son working inseparably with the Father. I wonder if you saw in that verse, the Father chose the church in eternity, but he chose the church in him. That is, in the Son. The church is holy because of Jesus, because of what he has done, because the Son is sent to redeem his people. Just a few verses later, verse 7, Paul says, in him, that's in Jesus, we, the church, have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. But how does what God has done in Jesus then become real for the church? Well, that is the Spirit, working inseparably with the Father and the Son. A couple of verses later, verse 13 of chapter 1, And you who were included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, you are included in Christ. When you believed, you were marked with, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, guaranteeing that redemption, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, I know that was a whistle-stop tour, but, but we see here the church is a people set apart by God as holy. But this holy status before God isn't sort of just a binary thing like a nationality. It is dynamic. Later in Ephesians, Paul describes this union like a marriage between Christ and the church. He, he gives us this picture 
see how um, Christ and the church is part of setting apart God's people as, as holy. In chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. A people set apart by God. Now, you may have heard of the theologian Martin Luther. He, he picked up this illustration of Christ and the church and how um, that it is through Christ that God's people are, are made holy and gave a, a really helpful um, description. Uh, and he describes it as the relationship between a king marrying a prostitute. Let, let me read this to you. He says, Here, this rich and divine bridegroom, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, marries the poor, wicked harlot. He redeemed her from all evil and adorns her with all his goodness. Her sin cannot now destroy her, since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And she has that righteousness or that holiness in Christ, her husband, of which she may boast of as her own, and which she can confidently display alongside her sins in the face of death and hell, and say, if I have sinned, yet my Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned, and all his is mine, and all mine is his. All his holiness becomes the church's, and on the cross we see Christ taking the church's sin upon himself. The church is holy because it is united to Jesus like a bride to a bridegroom. So holy, a people set apart by the triune God to be the bride of Christ, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. But as well as a people set apart by God, the church is a people set apart for God. This idea of a holy status works its way out in holy living. So that's the second sense of, of being set apart, set apart in our behavior, in the way we live. Now, as, as Christians, sometimes it can be easy to think a lot about what we've been saved from. What we've been saved from, we, we confess our sin, we think about the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. But as we think about that, if that is where all our attention goes, we may forget that we've been saved for something. Our union with Christ that we have, that we've just thought about, is more than just a, a ticket to heaven, a ticket to being right with God. It is an invitation to a life of communion with God as Father, Son, and Spirit. It is a life that we were made for. It is an invitation to live out a new allegiance, a new identity, a new relationship, a new family, a life of holiness set apart not just by God, but for God. This holy status works its way out in holy living. And Paul picks that up a little bit later in Ephesians. Here's just one verse, 4 verse 24, tells us he instructs us to put on the new self, that is, that the new identity that we have as the bride of Christ, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, people should know what family the church belongs to by how they live, 
the fact that they put on righteousness and, and holiness. It's not an optional extra, it's what we are saved for. But it's not even either about just living out some abstract principles, some kind of rule keeping. It's about living out this new family identity, living out the family name. Um, those of you who are fans of the TV program, um, Downton Abbey, I think there's another film coming out at some point, um, you'll know well the character of Branson. Um, I think there's a picture coming up. There he is. Branson, he joins the staff of Downton as a humble driver. But before long, he falls in love with the Earl's daughter, and he elopes, and, and they get married. And eventually, after some sort of nice little convenient plot twists and stretching it out for a season or two longer, he is then brought back into the family. But he does have to learn how to live differently. He has to learn, he, he, he's a driver, he's not part of the aristocracy, he has to learn how to use uh, the right spoons, uh, when to speak and when not to speak, how to address some a very important visitor and, and not kind of cause embarrassment. Things that would have seemed maybe a bit odd for the old Branson to do. But there is a sense in which he isn't the old Branson anymore. He, he is a different person now. What is it that has made him different now? Well, ultimately, it's his marriage to Sybil, his marriage to the daughter. She is the real difference from whom this behavior flows. Because of her, he's now part of the family. He's not a servant anymore. He's a son, a husband, a father. And so he lives differently, partly out of love for her, but also out of a new sense of responsibility, a, a duty to his new family name. It is both delight, he longs to please her, but also duty. And if that is true for an earthly family, then in a sense, how much more true for our heavenly family? If the church is set apart by God and brought into a new family, relationship with him, if by union with Christ we are the bride of Christ, then we too should live lives out of love for Jesus, out of delight in him, but also a sense of duty that it is right that we live out who we now are, that we belong to a new family. Tom Branson, um, he needed some encouragement in this, uh, but also some correction in this. And so were we as the church. But this holy status leads to a, a holy living. Now, sadly, we know, don't we, that the church often looks far from holy. Um, some of us will know this looking from the outside. We hear terrible stories of abuse, of bullying. And there is an appropriate response to this of grief and calling for justice to be done. But we'll also know this from within. We'll know from the darkness in our own hearts. But just because the church is not visibly fully holy yet, doesn't mean that it cannot grow in holiness and does not mean that one day it will not be when the Lord completes his work. I guess the challenge for us is to take responsibility. Do we know our holy status before the Lord? Will we live that out in our own lives? Will we pray it in for our brothers and sisters? Will we be prepared when necessary, to expose those deeds of darkness. Well, we see the church is holy, 
set apart by God's grace, set apart by God, for God, to bear the family name as the bride of Christ. The second thing we see in the Apostles' Creed is that the church is Catholic. Now, when a child asks you the meaning of a word they don't know, I wonder if you're ever tempted to do um, a kind of bit of a cheeky answer. Sometimes, if I can think quickly on my feet, I like to do this. So they might come up to you and they say, they hear a word um, like utensil. They say, what, what's a utensil? And you think, ah, oh, okay. Well, a utensil is a kind of implement. And then they say, well, what's an implement? And then it just goes on forever, doesn't it? Well, in the creed, we, the word that we normally use at this point is holy Catholic church. And what it means is universal not um, Roman Catholic, although uh, they are claiming to be the true universal church when they use that. But you might think me just telling you that Catholic means universal is kind of like calling a utensil an implement and not really getting very far. But what is being expressed when we call the church Catholic or universal is very important indeed. That's two things. Um, Firstly, that it is universal. When we call the church universal, what we're saying is that the church as a whole is more than a local church. The church is more than what is going on here at 5 past 11 or 10 past 11 on a Sunday morning. So firstly, the church is not confined to one place, to one culture, um, to one class, to one color. So we're not the only believers meeting this evening. There are people um, down the road, or also overseas. Christchurch, Southampton, Cornerstone, Portsmouth, um, Trinity, Sunderland, Paradox Church, Bratislava. We read of lots of places in the New Testament described as churches. Paul writes a letter to Ephesus that we had read earlier, but there's lots of other ones, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth. When he refers to the church in this way, he is referring to a local church, but sometimes the church refers to the whole church, as it were, more than just one place. And if you think about it, the universal church can never all be together in one place because it's too big and and too broad, and so it can only be expressed locally. So each local church, whilst it's fully a church, is also part of the universal church. And I think just remembering this is really vital for our encouragement. It reminds us what God is doing around the world. It reminds us that we are part of something bigger. It can be easy to focus on our little corner of the globe, can't it? And if we do that in time, maybe our prayers will become quite narrow. Maybe our generosity, our giving might become quite narrow. Our thought space and even our view of God's could become quite narrow. A small view of church and what God's doing in the world could lead to a small view of God himself. The church isn't confined by by place, but it isn't confined by time either. The church, the universal church, is more than those believers who are alive at this second. It is all who's ever lived and all who will live. Now, as a culture, we tend to assume newer is better, don't we? History is always progressing, getting better and better. And we even quote the year as an argument. It's 2022. Have you ever heard that? But as we remember that the universal church is 
the church across all of time, that is important too. Because as a church, that causes us to have humility. If we're thinking through uh, what we believe, a statement of faith, or how we do things on a Sunday, and if we get the idea that we want to do something differently or believe something different to any Christian in the past, well, remembering the universal church causes us to stop for a minute, to consider uh, maybe we might be on the mistaken side, to have some humility before thousands of years of Christian thinkers uh, before us. So the universal church affirms the church as a whole is more than the local church in any one time or, or place. And that is fitting, isn't it, for a God who is universal himself, who is eternal, who is God in all times, all places, and whose purposes extend through eternity. So when we call the church Catholic, it is universal, but also it is, secondly, united. This universality is only possible because of a deeper and more foundational unity across time and across space. If you think about it, there's tons of things that could divide a church. But what unites a church is more significant than any of them. Let's turn to Ephesians 2 that we had read, and we see two groups of people. And out of these two groups of people, God created one. This is talking about perhaps the biggest division imaginable in the first century, the division between Jew and Gentile. And yet it is overcome by the gospel, which brings peace and unity through Christ. I'm going to read from verse 12. Uh, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. He's talking to the the non-Jews here. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two, that's Jew and Gentile, the two groups one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How does he do it? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Why is it important that we affirm the universality and the unity of the church just as we've seen there, that the two are made one, when we affirm it, we affirm something very profound holds us together, that the deepest of hostility between humans can be broken down and overcome. We affirm that people can be part of the church who are Jew or Gentile, who are slave or free, who are male or female, young or old, rich or poor. We affirm one of the most beautiful things about the church, which is that there are no second-class Christians, that everyone is one in Christ. In the next couple of verses, he, he spells this out beautifully. Verse 18, he says, for through him we both have access, that's Jew and Gentile, to the same Father, to the Father by the same Spirit, by one Spirit. Consequently, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow 
citizens with God's people, members of his household, people who would have been citizens of different places, who could not have lived together in the same household, are one. Because in the church, everyone is equal before God. Everyone has every spiritual blessing in Christ, access to the same Father by the same Spirit. We had that picture earlier of the bride, the church is the bride of Christ, but another metaphor that Paul uses is uh, the metaphor of the body, which we get in Ephesians 4 as well, and in 1 Corinthians 12. And that picture of the body is a great one to have in mind when we're thinking about the church as universal. Christ is the head, and the church is the body. Christ guides and directs. And though the parts of the body do different things, like a hand and a foot, there is diversity, no part of the body is less part of the body than any other. Uh, My fingernail is just as much a part of body as my elbow. All are joined both to each other and to the head that is the Lord Jesus. And as you come on a Sunday, what a great picture to have in mind to remember and kind of get us out of our Western individualistic mindset that because the church is never just about me and Jesus, it is also about us and Jesus. It reminds us that we need each other. But I think that image of a body is also important for another reason. Because though we thought the church as a whole, it is more than the local church, it is more than what is happening this morning, we also need to remember that it is never less than that. Because belonging to the universal church, um, believers who are set apart by God, for God, in all of time and all places, is expressed by being part of a local church. That image of a body tells us, doesn't it, that a hand or a foot cannot exist if it is cut off from the body and left on its own. I wouldn't suggest trying it. And that is why the Christian who isn't part of a local church is an oxymoron. And when we see it, it is always an example of God's mercy and not God's ideal. I imagine we all know friends and family who might say they're a Christian, uh, but they don't attend a local church. Can't I just be part of the universal church and not go somewhere or go somewhere different all the time? I know there are particular situations, but Scripture says, ultimately, that that is like an amputated foot or hand trying to live disconnected from the body, deprived of the life that comes from the head and bleeding out, that it is not wise at all and is potentially fatal apart from God's grace. So to change the metaphor, it's like saying that you're a football player, but who never has a team to play for. It, it doesn't add up. If you're not part of a local church, that is a dangerous place to be. If you hardly ever attend a local church, I think there is a subtle warning here. Not because it's about racking up attendance and being happy that you've been every Sunday on the year, but repeated absence does cut us off from the body and God's means to encourage and grow us. So the church is universal and united in the Lord Jesus. And that is expressed at a local level. The bride and the body. Holy, Catholic, thirdly, church. And you might think, maybe I should have started with church, or maybe this one just seems obvious. But what does the word church mean? Literally, it is a gathering, 
It's what we're doing this morning, what thousands of people are doing around the globe. But what is it about this gathering that is different from any other gathering? There have been gatherings around um, rugby matches um, recently with the Six Nations. Well, partly, what makes the difference? It's those first two words, isn't it? It is the people who gather are holy, set apart by God, set apart for God. They are part of the church Catholic, the body of Christ. But there is more. Paul says a little bit later in Ephesians that something very profound about the gathering of believers. In chapter 3, verse 10, I think it's going to pop up on the screen. His intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, when we gather, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. How and to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When the church gathers together, it declares the manifold wisdom of God in Christ. It declares the gospel. The church is a bit like a a radio station beaming out the wisdom of God, his great plans and purposes for all of creation, the visible and the invisible, to see and to hear. And it is an eternal purpose of God to create the church, to do that, to, to point to his goodness and his grace. And we might think, aren't there lots of other great places we could look at to see the manifold wisdom of God? Maybe we look at a great mountain or, or something else. This kind of weak group of people, surely, surely that is not the best advertisement for God's manifold wisdom. But Paul suggests the church is God's masterpiece. That when we come, we are taking part in a broadcast to point to God's grace. That when we gather as a congregation, we are making a kind of visible demonstration of an invisible reality. One um, author puts it like this, that the church is the gospel made visible. So what is being made visible? How can we, uh, when we think that that is what is happening when we gather, that we are broadcasting, we are demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God. How is that demonstrated? Well, here's just three, three thoughts that when you come in on a Sunday morning, uh, you could maybe have in your mind uh, to encourage you at what this picture of gathering is doing. As we gather, firstly, we demonstrate the grace of God. Back to our reading, verse 13 tells us, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As we come on a Sunday morning to worship God, we come out of our lives and our situations that he's placed us in. We come out of our struggles, out of our sins, and it's a picture of the Lord drawing us to himself. We come to hear from him, to commune with him together. And what is it that brings us here? Well, it is not our own initiative. It is his grace. In um, olden churches, sometimes they would paint the doors red And that was a picture that, how do you join the church? Well, you join the church through the blood of the Lamb, by trusting in the Lord Jesus. And as you walk through that door, it is a picture that, though we come from a world where we feel we we do not belong, as we come through those red doors, we are reminded that we have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, that we belong to our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that we come to meet together as the bride who is loved by the bridegroom, Chosen, redeemed, indwelled by the Spirit. So we gather, 
that act of coming together is a picture of God's grace. And as we gather, it's one of the ways that Jesus cares for his bride, looks after his body. When we, when we, what we do together is, is a part of that ongoing relationship. We, we read the Bible, we listen to him speak in preaching, we, we sing, we pray to him, we feast as we have the Lord's Supper. All of these things point us to the grace of God. And so it's no surprise that if we neglect gathering together, we feel perhaps spiritually distanced, and we are deprived of that picture of the Lord drawing us to himself. The gathering displays the grace of God, but it also displays the peace of God. Back down in our reading, verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself, in the Lord Jesus, one humanity out of the two, making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. The church that kind of gathering doesn't just point to a new relationship between us and God, uh, but also between us and each other. It points to the new community that he has made, that he has reconciled us to one another. Because we come, don't we, as, as sinners, and our only hope of not hurting each other, not deceiving each other, not using each other, is actually for the Lord to unite us more deeply than to divide us, to change our hearts And also we come as people who, in everyday life, might well have absolutely nothing to do with one another. Have a a look around the room. Do you think you would encounter one another if it were not for the Lord Jesus bringing us into his family? And so when we gather, it points to the peace that God has made amongst us, that he has brought us together in Christ. And, And each time... What we do on a Sunday morning is an opportunity to express that. We, we sing, we pray, we say our men together, we have the Lord's Supper together. All of those things happen together as a body, as a people who are at peace with God and one another. So gathering displays the peace of God. It's a picture of the body working together in unity, both to encourage each other and to reach the world. But lastly, gathering also displays the plan of God. I've mainly spent time in in Ephesians this morning, um, because in this letter, maybe more than any other, Paul points to the church as being at the heart of God's plan, at the demonstration of his glory and grace. And and why is that? I think one answer is that the church is like a mini picture of where creation is heading. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, that God made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. What is that will? To put, be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. It is to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and earth under the Lord Jesus, under his good and gracious rule. His plan is that one day Jesus will be acknowledged by all people But for now, where do we see things united under Christ? Because that is not what the world looks like, is it, at the moment? Where do we see that? We see it in the church. The church is like a trailer for the new creation. If we want to see a picture of God's eternal purposes and plans, then the church is the closest place that we will get this side of heaven. 
And so as we, as we wait for that through what seems like so long, trials, temptations, uh, the church gathering is like a beacon of light every Sunday signaling that the king is coming, that hope is not lost, that this too shall pass. And what we are a picture of will become what is already a kind of foretaste, it is a reality, will become fuller and richer in every way. That as we gather, we are displaying the plan of God, even in a kind of seed form. So if your hopes are growing dim, if God's providence feels like he is frowning on you rather than smiling, then one of the best things we can do is to gather together and see this picture of God's plan. And when we do, we're also being part of the picture for our brothers and sisters so that they can see it too. Because the church is holy, set apart by God and for God, because it is Catholic, it is universal and united, because of those truths, we gather to display the grace of God, the peace of God, and the plan of God, and so much more. And that's why we love our Sunday mornings at Redeemer and why we think they are so important. Well, I began with a question. What comes to mind when you think of church? Um, maybe over, over coffee, you could, you could chat about how these three words um, might have helped you um, to see the church more as God sees the church. And let's pray that, that he would do that now, shall we? Heavenly Father, we praise you for your church. We thank you that the church is your masterpiece, that the church is chosen, redeemed, and sealed by you. We praise you that the church is the way you are working in the world, and that in your kindness, you bring us into relationship with you to be part of your amazing plans. Lord, help us, uh, we pray, to see the church more as you see the church, to see its diversity, its unity. Help us to live out the family name that we have in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray that Sunday by Sunday as we gather, that you would use our gathering to point us to your grace, to point us to the peace that we have, to grow our unity, and to remind us of your great plan, to build us up, uh, to reach the world so that all things would be united under Jesus. We pray you'd use our times together to deepen our joy in him and to strengthen us as we serve him. In his name, amen.